Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 14 is where we left off a couple weeks ago before we went to, before Jennifer and I went to the United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi there, uh, and then on to India, and I'll tell you a little bit about that, that trip kind of in this message, and then and in the coming weeks, especially next Sunday night when we gather for our member meeting, um, but, but open to Romans chapter 14, that's where we left off, praise God for the word that was preached the last couple weeks through Tyler and Robert, if you miss those messages, I encourage you to find them online and to listen to them, but we resume our journey in Romans, and by God's grace, Lord willing, I think we'll finish Romans here late summer, early fall, and um, then I will uh, exhale and breathe and detox, and then we'll start another book in the Bible, um, probably in the Old Testament, Lord willing. But uh, as you're finding Romans chapter 14, if you're visiting with us for the first time, you can use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you. You can see the page numbers there on the Bible. You're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself. I think you'd be really helped if you just open your copy of God's Word. We'll have it on the screen, but, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself right in front of you. Before Easter, when we last looked at Romans chapter 14, we, we covered verses 1 through 4. We're going to read all of that again, and then we're going to zero down into verses 5 through 12. And let me just mention, as you're finding that, what a great trip we had in Abu Dhabi, the richest city in the world. Uh, And then we went from there, where Gareth and Carrie Franks, if you remember them, they were South African church plant missionaries, church uh, missionaries to India for about 15 years. They were with us last year, and they they planted three or four churches in India, and since that time, they have left India and are now pastoring a Bible-preaching, gospel-heralding church in Abu Dhabi, which is in the heart of the Muslim world. And even though the United Arab Emirates is a very conservative Muslim country, the sheikhs that rule that country are actually very generous and gracious rulers, and 90% of that country are not actual Arab emirates. They are people from all over the world that are there working in the oil industry or working in the education industry. And so, even though they're a very conservative Muslim country, they provide for the religious needs of people from all over the world. 90% of their country are not Arabs, are not, are not Muslim, are not Emiratis. And even though they're very conservative, uh, you're welcome to establish churches there. And so there, is a, there are numerous gospel-preaching churches that would be theologically aligned with Crosspoint and Midtree. There's about 15 of them in the UAE. Some of them are over 1,000 people. Gareth's church was about 300 folks, 40 different nationalities represented in this one church, and they preach the gospel there, and it's a kind of place where these people will come and work for three or four years, and then they'll go back to their country. So it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for the the heralding of the good news to all the nations as they come to work in the United Arab Emirates in their industry. And then after we left Abu Dhabi, we went with the Franks to India where we reunited with the churches that they've planted and did some, a church camp 
there and we're with those folks kind of 24-7 in a church camp talking about church health. The churches there are doing wonderfully. One of the pastors there, Kasho Kale, preached here a few years ago when he came to the United States for some theological training and he and, and the other pastors there send their greetings. We help to support these pastors on a yearly basis. I mean, it was just a wonderful time. They, they, it, you know, Indians, uh, Robert mentioned in a sermon last week that I, I might have some, some stories about just kind of personal space. We, it was a church camp, and there was no hot water. And so every morning about 5.30, the youth and a couple of guys would knock on our little door for our little little barracks area and, and bring our buckets with hot water. And so I'd have to you know, get up in my my pajamas and take out this bucket and, and about 5.30 in the morning there's these Indian teenagers and Indian pastors and we're all standing there in our skivvies having a conversation about the day's activities and so and, and we were you know we were just real close to each other and um, it, was, it was a joy <laughs> brings another another meaning to the word fellowship as I'm standing there and you, don't, you guys don't need that mental picture but I was so encouraged by the, uh, the intentionality and the seriousness and the joy of these believers that live in a mostly uh, majority Hindu culture and in some places in India, a hostile culture where they are attacking and persecuting physically Christians. Not so much where these people live, but they, uh, there's something about the believers in India of course, there's, there's darkness everywhere. You know that. The, uh, Hindu um, India or, or Muslim Middle East is no darker than those that are lost in the United States. We, we know that, right? But there is a kind of starkness to some of the idolatry that you see. Our idols are more hidden in our hearts, um, and, and they're just as deadly, maybe even more deadly. Um, the, the idols of kind of the false religions in that part of the world are a little bit more evident. And as a result, I think the believers there sort of stand out. They, they, they pop more brilliantly. They're like a diamond against a, a black backdrop, and it's, it's beautiful to see. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about that next Sunday night um, in our member meeting, but, but all of the brothers and sisters there bring their greetings to Cross Point, and, and Lord, Lord willing, um, we'll bring some of these Indian brothers here over the years to... To, to preach to you. All right, Romans chapter 14. Before I read, we're going to read through it, and I've got three truths that I want us to draw out of this. I think, I think the point of Romans chapter 14 is what impact the gospel should have on the culture of a church. Culture is important. You see this in sports teams. You, you can have the best players but if you don't have a kind of culture, a cohesion, if they don't get along, no matter how good the players are on that team, they're just not going to flow together. They're not going to function like they should. The same thing with, um, uh, and I don't know much about music, but I love to listen to good music. But I imagine it's the same thing with an, with an orchestra. You can have the best musicians in the world in an orchestra, and unless, they, unless the culture of that group of musicians is one where they, they are not in it merely for themselves, but they're in it to make music together, then how they sound will not, will not ever reach what it's intended to be. And I think that's Paul's point here in Romans chapter 14. Remember what we've been doing through these, this journey through Romans is we've been looking at, staring at, 
observing in the glory, observing the glory of the gospel as Paul has, has outlined it for us in Romans 1 through 11. And the gospel is this glorious news of how a righteous God has made unrighteous people righteous. We're all unrighteous, whether we are Americans or whether we are, are Arabs in the Middle East or whether we are Indians in the Far East. We are all born unrighteous in our sin. That's the clear witness of the gospel. Whether we are God's old people in the Old Testament, whether we're Jews or whether we are pagan Gentiles, everybody, there's a, a kind of leveling of the playing field. Every one of us, by nature, is unrighteous. We're dead in our sins, and there's no way that the unrighteous, in and of themselves, by their own works, by their own religious effort, can ever make themselves right with the righteous God. But God has not left humanity in that estate. God has made a way for the unrighteous to become righteous. And how has he done it? Not through telling the unrighteous that they need to become righteous enough, but by sending his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself in the flesh, to become a man, to succeed, to obey, to perfectly follow God's law where all of us have disobeyed him. And then to lay down his perfect human, eternally divine life on the cross to bear the wrath of God for our unrighteousness so that he would remove the penalty for our unrighteousness and actually give us those who believe his righteousness. And now the way that God makes unrighteous people righteous is by giving them the gift of life, giving them the gift of faith, whereby they can trust in Jesus and not in their own works and their own righteousness, which would never make them righteous. And so, that's, that's the gospel. Yeah, I know, I know. I get, some of you say, Brad, every time you're away, you just come back and you summarize Romans. I know, I'm self-aware. <laughs> Most of the time. But come on, if you're gonna repeat something, repeating the message of Romans is a good thing to repeat. Can I get an amen? Yeah. All right. So where was I before I was self-justifying myself there? <laughs> So the message of Romans is how God has made unrighteous people righteous now, but that's not the whole message of Romans. In light of that, in light of what God has done to make us not just individually saved, but to put us together in a family, he says in light of all that, this is the second half of Romans, in light of all that, this is the impact that your grace that you receive should have on you. In other words, this is the culture. This is what the gospel impact should have on a group of people whom have been made righteous by the righteous God, not because of their own works, but because of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so this is, this is what the gospel team, the people of God, should play like. This is what the gospel orchestra should sound like. And that's what Romans chapter 14 is. So let's, let's look at Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. We're going to stop along the way. So let me, let me just read here. I got it blown up. with. I don't need my glasses. I got it in larger font. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I actually like 
The NIV here, we're reading out of the English Standard Version. The NIV says not to quarrel over disputable matters. I like that phrase. One person believes he may eat anything while the, person, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, so let's pause there and just kind of reorient ourselves on, on what Paul's point is up to this point. We covered verses 1 through 4 about a month ago. And the point that, that, that we made there is that Paul is now in chapter 14 talking about interpersonal relationships in the local church. This is, what, this is what gospel culture should look like, sound like, smell like. And he's talking about, he's distinguishing two groups. And it's important that we understand who these two groups are. He's talking about those who are weak in their faith and those who are strong in their faith. Now, when he's talking about weak and strong, he's not so much talking about some people, the, the, he's not saying that the weak are people who are prone to doubt whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, or that God has saved them, or um, that, that, that they're doubting their own assurance. What he means by that is that their consciences are tender, and they, they believe that even though they know that they're believers, and they believe that everybody in the church is believers, that there's these issues like whether or not you can eat certain foods, uh, like vegetables uh, or, or particular meats. And the, those that are more tender in their conscience are likely Christians that were probably Old Testament, they were probably Jews who have come to faith in Jesus, and they realize that we're justified not by law observance, but by faith in Christ alone. But they're living in this Roman culture. And by the way, the law in the Old Testament says, does, does not outlaw the eating of meat, but what's likely happening here is these Roman Christians, who are probably Jews, now converted to Christ, realized that most of the meat that they were eating in Rome was meat that had previously maybe been sold to them by a butcher that was a pagan that had kind of like offered or dedicated this meat to some false god. This is the same issue that's going on in, in 1 Corinthians 8. And so they were thinking, you know what? There's kind of some voodoo hex on that piece of meat. And so I just, I, I don't think Christians should be involved with eating that meat. That's what's going on here. And so we're just going to eat vegetables. And that, that's, those are the ones that are more these are who Paul's calling weak. They're, they're more tender in their conscience as to what is allowable to, for the Christian to partake in. And Paul here is, is saying that, that we, we shouldn't get into, we, we may have our own opinions, but he's really chiding both sides, the weak and the strong. And ultimately we'll see that he actually sides with the strong who believe that they can eat whatever they eat want to eat because he, he realizes that there, there really is no true God that's sort of put a, a false God that's put some sort of hex over that piece of meat. So that's all false anyway. So you're free. The gospel frees you to eat whatever you want to eat. But if it's going to trouble a Christian whose conscience is a little bit weaker, then you should, you should first of all not look down on that brother or sister and you should welcome him. And then as we'll look at the second half of this chapter, which we'll get to next week, we, we should not esteem our freedom to, 
to partake in that meat over the, the walk or the conscience of another Christian. And so what he, he's, he's calling us to here in the first four verses, and really in this whole chapter, is a kind of spiritual maturity that understands the difference between binding truth and doctrine and secondary and third level matters that Christians can disagree about. So I don't think that we, any of us, should disagree about whether or not Jesus is fully man and fully God. I think that's clear in the Bible, and we should bind each other's conscience to that. I think you should believe that. I think you must believe that. Uh, he's not talking about whether or not we should believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I think you must believe that. I think that's clear in the Bible. But what he's talking about is these, these third and fourth level issues that Christians can legitimately have different opinions over, and he's really not so concerned about coming down on one side or the other, although at the end of the chapter and into chapter 15, he does come down on the side of the strong. His point is not so much on who's right on these disputable matters, but the way in which Christians interact with one another on them. I think that's his point in verses one through four, really in the whole chapter. So let's keep going, verses five and following. One person, so he's used vegetables and meat um, as, the, as the sort of example number one. And, and praise God, I mean, I think, you should, I think you can and should eat steaks. Okay, so in case you were wondering where we say, praise God. But if, if you, um, f- for whatever reason, feel that, you know, vegetarianism is, is, is the best way for you to go, then, then okay. And we should not we should not look down on one another for these choices, and we shouldn't hold our choices over one another's heads as a kind of marker of spirituality, right? Now, I don't know if meat and vegetables is the problem here, but maybe, maybe, maybe there are problems like, you know, homeschooling versus public school, or a way to raise your baby with this particular parenting philosophy or whatever. Come on now, don't act like, we don't, let's not look down the portals of time and act this sort of chronologically snobbish, like, oh, I can't believe, we got our own stuff that we hold over each other's heads too, don't we? So, so let's apply these things to, to our hearts. So he uses veg, vegetables and meat, and the second example he's gonna use is, is this idea of the Sabbath. So he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. In other words, what he's getting at is some Christians think that you should, you should adhere to the Old Testament law principle of the Sabbath, whereas other Christians don't think that you need to uh, uh, hold to that anymore. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul, again, is saying, really, it doesn't doesn't matter. I think he's actually siding with the strong here. He's saying it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. It also doesn't matter whether you think one day is particularly more holy than the other or whether all days are alike. You should just be fully convinced in your own mind. You have your own convictions, but those convictions are secondary and even tertiary, and shouldn't be brought to bear as a marker of spiritual maturity in the life of the church. So I think that brings us to truth number one, and we've, we've, we've already kind of said it here, but let's see it spelled out for us. Truth number one is that we should be gracious in disputable matters. 
the culture that the gospel should have, or the, the impact that the gospel should have in the culture of the church is that it should cause us to be spiritually mature enough to understand what is essential and what is non-essential and what is not essential disputable matters things that we can have different opinions over should cause us to be gracious towards other christians who disagree with us so what about the sabbath because this is this is an area i don't think that there are many arguments in modern day christianity about whether or not you can eat meat or vegetables. But, but there is, this one sort of lingers a little bit. So, so he uses this, this example of the Sabbath as an example of a dispute in the church that we should be gracious towards one another in. So what's going on here? In the Old Testament, as part of the Mosaic Law, one of the markers, one of the ways that God identified his people to and separated them from the the nations around them was through the signs of circumcision, the cutting away of the male foreskin at, at eight days after birth, and then the observance of the, the Sabbath. And so these became signs, they became identifiers, kind of like dog tags or, or like a jersey for God's people in the Old Testament that identified them made them distinct from all of the other nations of the world. And in God's law, Old Testament law, they had a purpose to, to identify God's people to an onlooking world. And that, that was the, one of the points, one of the, the roles of the law. But now that Jesus has come, this, this truth, this good news that this Old Testament was pointing to, which was Jesus, this Old Testament law, which was good and holy and still is good and holy, had its purpose, and that purpose was to point towards Jesus. See, the Old Testament law was never meant to be a, a system of works whereby we could accomplish our own salvation. It was meant to point us to God's righteousness, it was meant to shine a light on our unrighteousness, and it was meant to lift our heads to cause us to realize that we needed a righteousness outside of ourselves. In a way, you can think of the Old Testament as a kind of God's ordained means to bring us to futility so that we would stop looking for righteousness in and of ourselves and look to God. So the law not only shows us God's holiness, shows us our unho unholiness, but it also points, it's a sign that points to the Holy One who will fulfill the obligations of the law for us that we can't fulfill on our own. And that's the message of Romans in many ways. Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. So all of the Old Testament law that we couldn't fulfill perfectly, Jesus has done. Now God's holiness has been satisfied in Jesus. And now all of these Old Testament commands 
no longer are binding on the Christian because Jesus has fulfilled them. Now, they're still instructive for us. We can read the Old Testament, and they give us a picture of the holiness of God and the futility of man, but they're no longer binding on us in that way that they were in the Old Testament. And so Paul's point here is, is he's being consistent with the gospel that he has preached up to this point, and he's saying that now this Sabbath sign has been fulfilled in Jesus and so he's actually siding with the strong here, and he's saying, really, no day is more holy than the other. But there will be people who are still kind of hung up on this, and they feel, so be gracious with them. Be gracious with them. Do you see that? In fact, this is what he says in, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Let me read this, Colossians chapter 2. He says, and this is, this is zeroing in specifically on that idea of whether or not the Sabbath is still is still relevant or still necessary for, for Christians to uphold. And that's, that's the point that he's bringing up here in, in Romans 14. Listen to what he says in Colossians 2. And this is the gospel and its implications. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what's that saying? That's the good news of the gospel. Friends, that's saying that God is holy and you're not. And now the demons of hell are accusing God's people because they cannot live up to God's righteousness, and they're right in that. But Jesus comes to satisfy the righteousness of God's holy code, the Old Testament law, and he removes its penalty by dying on the cross for us, and he disarms the peanut gallery of the demons who are telling us that we're not good enough to follow God's way because Jesus has followed it for us, and he gives us life so that we can now obey God. That's the gospel. And then in verse 16, he says one implication of this, and this was going on in the Colossian church, and clearly it's going on in Romans. One implication of this is that people were wondering about these Old Testament laws and whether or not they still apply. And he says in verse 16, look at Colossians 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. What does he say about these things? They, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so Paul is giving us a kind of biblical theology of the Old Testament. He's explaining the purpose of the Old Testament and the Old Testament law for us. Come on now, I know it's raining and it's Mother's Day, but you guys are looking a little, come on, you, you, can, you can understand this, all right? Come on. You can understand this. Lean forward with me in this. This is important. This is, this is how the Bible fits together, okay? So he's explaining the Old Testament for us. He's saying that all of these things were beautiful and, 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 and right and true, but they had a purpose. They were pointing us to a righteousness that we couldn't do on our own. And so they're pointing us to Christ. They're shadows that are pointing to the reality, which is not our obedience, but Christ's obedience in his life, death, and resurrection. And so now, because of what Jesus has done, 
We are free to find grace, not in what we do, but in what Christ has done. And so now, whatever we eat or drink, or whether we worship on this day or the next, is no longer a part of, of obeying God's Old Testament law because God's Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Jesus. For example, when we were in the United Arab Emirates, a Muslim country, the Muslim weekend is Friday and Saturday. And the buildings that they offer for Christian churches to gather in is Friday. And so they worship on Friday mornings. We flew into Abu Dhabi, got there Thursday night, and got up Friday morning and went to church. So are the Christians in Abu Dhabi and in the Muslim world that worship on Friday being disobedient to the scriptures? No, they're not. In fact, in the New Testament, the Sabbath, which is Saturday, we see it kind of moved to Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, which is the day that Christ raised from the dead. So we even see in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, the early church moving off of Sabbath to the, to the first day of the week, Sunday, which is why we worship on Sunday. But I, w- I, would, I would say that to be consistent with what Paul is saying here is that although we worship on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day and it's a, it helps us remember the day that Jesus came back from the grave, I think Paul's ultimate point here is that it really doesn't matter what day you worship on. Whether it's Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday, or if, if you live in a culture and that's just the way it has to be for whatever reasons or constraints, then you are no less obedient or pleasing to God because you're worshiping on this day or the next. Friends, do you see the freedom that the gospel, what's it, what's it? Some, come on, some of you are like, man, this is, what's he talking about? See this, see this. What's that, what's that issue here is the freedom of the grace of the gospel. You, we, any person that knows Jesus is made right, is reconciled to God, not by whether or not they obey some Old Testament shadow, but because of what Jesus has done. And now all these Old Testament shadows, Paul is calling disputable matters, and we should be gracious to one another as to how we live them out. But, but, but we saw a contrast, not, not just worshiping on a Friday morning in the UAE, but I mean, we just saw a picture of works-based attempts of man and righteousness. And we went to the, the Grand Mosque of Abu Dhabi. I think it's one of the largest mosques in the world. It costs about $2 billion to build. One of the most, this architecturally, one of the most beautiful buildings I have, maybe the most beautiful building I have ever seen. It was stunning stunning but even just the way that you have to enter into that property is kind of works based and jennifer uh was had to you know they they gave her one of these robes to put on so that she you know none of her even her you know arms and below her no no skin could be shown by women and then just the, the way that they worship what they believe to be god is just built on works about man attaining his own righteousness. And, and it's not just Muslims, friends. We, we are like that. The, the mankind is naturally born into this state where we think what we do will garner us righteousness before God. Yes, what we do 
after salvation is a matter of sanctification and it's obedience. We should obey God in many areas. But what Paul is zeroing in here is this gospel issue of don't think that you're better than a brother or sister because of your opinion on a secondary matter that Christ has fulfilled. And this, this then affects the gospel culture of a church. Let me, let me Before we move on, I'm going to speed up here, but let me just say, I, I wondered this this week. I kind of thought about this. Why doesn't the Bible speak more specifically on these disputable matters? So there's all these kind of gray areas. In fact, Paul, Paul doesn't really come down, maybe like we might, you know, there's a lot of second and third level issues that are just a little confusing in the Bible. And we may be, I think, um, legitimately asking, why isn't the Bible more specific? Why didn't it just tell us? Just, this is what you should do. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Well, I think there's a purpose behind that. It's not because the Bible is lacking or insufficient in any way. No, the Bible tells us everything we need for life and godliness. We read that in 2 Peter chapter 1. I think what's going on is God has intentionally allowed for differences of opinions, some ambiguity in these secondary and third level areas because the way that we deal with one another and are gracious with one another in those areas becomes a kind of opportunity to display the gospel of grace that we believe. So it's like in these areas of Sabbath observance or steaks and vegetables or, or, or whatever we may be facing. Should we homeschool our children or should we send them into the private school or should we send them to public school or, or should we, should we you know, have this type of music or we should, whatever. God is giving the church an opportunity to in these non-essential, maybe important, but non-essential areas of truth, he's giving us an opportunity to be gracious to one another, which is a kind of amplification of how he's been gracious to us. Do you see that? I, I think that God has a, a design in allowing for disputes in the church so that we're gracious towards one another. It's like we're children and God's the Father and instead of just telling us exactly what to do and how to play together, God is saying, play with and live with your brother or sister. Well, how? Exactly. Well, he gives us all these instructions, certainly, but how we live out the implications of our sonship and our daughtership and how we work it out then becomes a kind of witness to an onlooking world that is far more beautiful, far more attractive to the gospel than just a set of rote rules in every little, every little tiny area of life. And we shouldn't come to the Bible like that because the Bible doesn't work like that. Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Man, verse 8 is a sentence. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, Christ lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose victorious 
victoriously over sin, death, and the grave. He reigns now in heaven. Remember Romans 8. He's interceding for us. He's alive, and he will bring us to himself. He will resurrect his people on that final day. And so what Paul is saying here is lift up your eyes, your gods, you're not yourselves. You don't, you're not owned by yourself, which I think brings us to truth number two, is that we belong to God and should live for him. We belong to God and should live for him. I, I think the gospel culture of a church should produce Godward lives. God has not freed us from our unrighteousness and our captivity to sin so that we can just live however we want to live. He's saying that we live in a way that we are conscious of the fact that we're in a community. We don't live as islands but we're living in a Godward direction. We care about what he thinks, and what he thinks will always, if we're living for him, it will always bring about the best for the people around us. Even if we have to have gracious disagreements, we have to wrestle with differing opinions on disputable matters. Matters. What Paul is calling us here is a Godwardness to, to please God and not ourselves or the people around us. There's this wonderful book, by this Christian counselor named Ed Welsh. And just the title of the book, I think you'd do well to read the book, but I think just the title of the book is, is sort of instructive to me. And the title of the book is, When People Are Big and God is Small. Just the title right there. I mean, I'm just like, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> you kind of get the point of the book. When people are big and God is small. And what I think Paul is calling us to here in verses 7 through 9 is, is, is just that very notion that we should belong, we, we belong to God. He purchased us. 1 Corinthians 6, that we, we were bought with a price. You're owned by God. You're not your man. Friends, this has all sorts of implications for our sanctification, for the way we live, for what we do with our possessions, for, for how we treat other people. We don't belong to ourselves. But everything, friends, we live in a culture that will tell you just the opposite. And, and unfortunately, much of American church culture is, is, is engineered to make you think much of yourself. And, and it's, it's engineered to make you feel good, be happy, be confident, so that you can go be a more awesome version of you. And as a result, I mean, God forbid that the church is honest about how life is hard. So they get all these like, kind of like beautiful people up on stage and they all just look cool in their clothes and they all have great voices and they're just so awesome. And every picture on their website is just these awesome people in this really cool little setting in the church with cool coffee and it's like a filters and everything. Everything's just awesome because being a Christian is awesome and everything is awesome because I'm awesome and God has made me awesome. And yeah, friends, that makes me throw up in my mouth. That's not the biblical picture of life. And that's not why God created you, and it's not why he saved you, so you could be a kind of sexy, awesome Christian who lives a more fulfilling life for your sake. You're God's. You're his. 
You don't live for yourself. You live for other people. And the mess that is your life is meant to be put together with other messes so that together we aren't this awesome picture of American Christianity, but so that together we are a kind of pardoned group of rebels who are walking towards God to that day when he will call us home and he gets all the glory, not our cuteness, not our cleverness, not our social media awesomeness. We live for God. It's Mother's Day and you're not in the mood for this, but this is true. Let's keep going. Last three verses and then I'll wrap it up. He says, This is kind of the final motivation. The final motivation. All of this is, you know, be gracious to one another. Let the gospel, let the gospel produce grace in your life. Because you're God's, you're not your own. There should be this amazing humility that the gospel creates in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. And he points us ultimately to why this is so important because we're going somewhere. And the end of this life is not where we're going. That's the beginning of the rest of eternity. He says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? So he's he's speaking to both weak and strong. You weak people who think that the strong are, you know, carnal Christians, you shouldn't judge them. And you strong people who are despising what you consider to be the weakness of your brother, you shouldn't despise them. Why? He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for it is written, he's quoting a verse here out of Isaiah, that then he also quotes in Philippians chapter 2, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, that's not something we think about much in gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches, but I think we should. I think it brings us to this third truth, that we will all give an account to God of our lives. Now, make no mistake. Make no mistake. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. That that standing before God on that day to give an account of yourself before God should not be a reason that we should shouldn't provoke fear or dread in us because the good news of the gospel in Romans 8 is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are trusting in Jesus then when you stand before God, there will be no reason, there will be no condemnation. It's gone, it's removed, and you are his. But what Paul is saying here is that the glory of the gospel does not mean that the rest of your life after salvation means nothing. He's telling us here in this text that our lives matter. He says it even more clearly. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so I don't, I don't the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how this is going to work out, but I think this, this is a picture of how we will stand before God someday and how we live after we have been rescued and redeemed and reconciled by God matters. 
And there will be a kind of final accounting of all that we've done. And Paul is spurring us on here to say, be humble, be gracious to other Christians, live for God, because how you live post-salvation matters because you're going to stand before God someday and give an account. And when we stand before God, here's, here's, here's what I think is going to happen. It's not that there's shame or condemnation, but God will give us a picture of all the ways that we did not live up to the fullness of all that we should have lived up to. And in that moment, there will be no condemnation, but we will see in greater color and in greater depth and in greater high definition how glorious the gospel is because we will have a deeper picture of how actually good God has been to us in our salvation despite our failure, even after having received his grace, and it will cause more worship in us. You see that? So there's no condemnation. I'll stand before God and I'll see, oh man, it'll be, believe me, believe me, believe me. I feel this because James says that those who teach publicly will, will, will receive a stricter judgment. And I've said some foolish things in these past 14 years and I've done some, dumb, I've been negligent. There's people, I, oh, I, I, I think about that day. But when I stand before God and everything that I've done matters and there's a picture of it and I see when the curtain is pulled and I see it will not cause me despair but it will actually cause me greater joy because then I'll see really really how good God has been to me you see that and I look I want that to motivate me if, if, we're, if I'm truly a believer that should motivate me to make that day the gap between my salvation and my sanctification is smaller, right? I don't want to just rest in that and say, oh, well, this is good news. I can just do whatever I want because when I stand before God someday, it's just going to serve to show his grace even more. No. That's exactly the opposite of what Romans 6 says. It says that just because you've, God's been gracious to you doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. So be sober-minded because you're going to stand before Jesus. But friends, don't dread it because when you stand before Jesus, man, you're going to see in clearer definition than you've ever seen just how good God has been to you despite your failure. And this is another thing. This is awesome because I'm a jealous, egotistical jerk deep down inside. And when you're standing next to me, and you get more rewards than I get in heaven. Because Jesus actually talks that there's differing levels of reward. Listen to this. Because we're free, we're finally free of sin, your greater reward will no longer be an occasion for my jealousy and covetousness, but your greater reward will be an occasion for my joy for you. <laughs> and so I'll be happy for you, You'll be happy for Billy. Billy will be happy for Susie. And there will just be increasing joy every day because Jesus is receiving all the glory. And that's the motivation that Paul is calling. Friends, if that's where we're going, then how petty are our foolish disputes here? It doesn't mean we got, don't have to work some stuff out. Doesn't mean that we don't have to have some hard conversations, but we have all of these. This is what he's saying, and I'm going to end this up so you don't burn your roast. That what he's saying 
is that the Christian life and the way we live it out horizontally and the way we interact with one another and the way we deal with weak and strong and differing opinions should be so informed by that day that it causes a humility in me that affects the culture of the church. Praise God. Praise God. Dear Christian, do you live in light of that day? Brad, do you live in light of that day? This, I want this text to reorient me to that. And friend, if you're in here this morning and you're not, you're not yet a believer, man, there's, I'm sure there's been some stuff that I've said that maybe went over your head or you didn't quite get. And uh, I, I get all that, friends. But, but, but you can hear this, that you will stand before God someday. What will be your plea? What will be your plea? It can't be your own righteousness. That will bring you no, no hope. But if your plea is Christ and what he's done and how good he's been to you, there will be no condemnation for you on that day. So I plead with you, friend, turn from trusting in yourself today, finally, and put your hope in Jesus and say, Jesus, you died for me. I trust in you. Do that right now, friends. Do that right now. And be saved and be reconciled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture. Thank you that you didn't just give us the gospel, but you gave us the implications of the gospel. You, you have a Bible filled with pictures and displays of, of what it should look like in our life, Lord. Lord, make us a church that's just infiltrated with this type of intentionality, this type of sober-mindedness, this type of care for one another. Give us a, a church full of people whose heads are on a swivel, who are patient, who don't gossip, who are kind, who, who, who are long-suffering for one another, who, who bear one another's burdens, who, who don't judge one another in these secondary matters because... We know that we will all stand before you one day and, and we'll have enough to handle on that day. And on that day it will be glorious because even the areas where we didn't even realize that we failed, you will show us how amazingly gracious you've been. Lord, let us, let us live and deal with each other with that day in view. And, and God, for my friends that are here today that don't know you, God, would you... Would you take my feeble words and would you break through their unbelief? Would you break through their self-centeredness? And would you, would you show them that their only hope they have is what you have done through your son Jesus and his perfect life and his sacrificial death where he bore your wrath for our sin and he rose again in victory. And now you call all of us to turn from trusting in ourselves, to turn from trusting in our own righteousness, our own works, and to put our hope and trust in what Jesus has done. Lord, would you do that today for my friends in this room? Would you give them a heart to believe so that they can be saved and live their life with the rest of us longing for that day? Lord, do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.